Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 456. Uh, we are doing a bunch of shows at SF Sketchfest in February. On February 7th, the Nerdist Podcast goes to the um, Marines Memorial Theater in San Francisco. And a bunch of tickets are gone, so you should probably hop on those pretty fast if you want to go. And uh, then I'm going to be doing... Um, we're going to screen Revenge of the Nerds, and then the cast is going to be there, and we're going to do a Q&A. I believe it's at the Castro Theater. And uh, I'm doing a bunch of shows that weekend, and uh, the weekend of February 7th. So go to sfsketchfest.com uh, if you plan on being there and come by. And if you don't want to go to any of uh, my or our shows, then SF Sketchfest has a multitude of other shows that would be of interest to you. So, um, again, sfsketchfest.com to get tickets, and hopefully we'll see you there. I'd like to thank... Inside Lewin Davis for sponsoring this uh, episode of the Nerds. I could just say Lewin Davis sponsored this episode of the Nerds podcast. And because it's a period piece, he wouldn't really know that he's sponsoring a podcast, even though going on a podcast probably would have helped his music career. Uh, but he didn't know about it yet. So it's just one of the many tragedies that the Coen brothers heaped on Lewin Davis was not giving him a time period in which he could come on a podcast and gain the type of popularity that he so desperately wanted. It's now playing in select cities. Um, it is a young folk singer. It's kind of navigating Greenwich Village in 1961, nominated for three Golden Globe Awards, including Best Motion Picture, Comedy or Musical, and written and directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, um, starring Oscar Isaac and Carey Mulligan and John Goodman and Garrett Hedlund and JT... Justin Timberlake, that's how I say JT now. Even if I'm not referring to Justin Timberlake, that's, you just have to say the letters J and T uh, together. Like, JT, which means just tea time. So if you just want tea, it's JT time. Um, throw that at your mom uh, or kids. Either way, uh, and you'll get the same puzzled looks. But uh, this episode of the podcast is John Lovitz, who I didn't really know before. Uh, and uh, we had a really, you know, the, the, this chat spans a bunch of topics SNL and Phil Hartman is some really wonderful um, uh, wonderful section about about Phil and John's relationship with Phil and uh, and then uh, and then we got into some dad stuff because I'm still going through that and I assume we'll probably continue to go through that for a while so there is some uh, there's like, it's like a little dark a little bit of death talk near the end so just giving you a heads up I don't know if that stuff bums you out or not but this is what uh, this is what I'm I'm going through now, so it's gonna come up from time to time. So, but it was it was a really comforting and, and lovely. T- I thought it was a, a lovely talk. So um, you know, 
I, I hope you enjoy it as well. It is the Nerdist Podcast with John Lovitz, who, by the way, I did his podcast, Lovitz or Leavitz, um, which should be up now, um, which we recorded at his, uh, his theater at City Walk. So here it is, Nerdist Podcast number 456 with John Lovitz. Or Leavitz. What if I want to put it right here? Who am I talking to? Now entering Nerdist.com. There's no official start. This is it, really. Oh. And we're done. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I'd like to thank John Lovitz for being here. <laughs> uh, I had a delightful time. Thank you very much. Yes. It was a good 45 seconds. I think it was a really solid... I think it was the best 45 seconds. Uh, you know, I've heard of your podcast, so I'm just thrilled to be on it <laughs> at all. <laughs> well, so, att- goodbye. Attention, attention spans are very short now. Kids listen for like 45 seconds, and then that's it. And they have no time anymore. Yeah. Um, it's the ADD, which I have. Did you just say You'll something? Notice. I'm sorry. I was just, I was looking at, I was looking over there. What? I, what you? Hmm? You go. What you? Huh? What? Uh, it's really nice to meet you. I, I feel like we had met once before, um, uh, years ago when I used to drink. I used to, uh, I, I was, uh, I was, I would ride shotgun in Bob Saget's car, and then. And Bob and I would go out and tear it up, and I felt oh. I feel like there were a couple of nights after the Laugh Factory. But I, was, I was saying it might be the Laugh Factory because yeah, I used to do a show there on Wednesdays, and then Bob would come by sometimes after me. So yeah, maybe I I apologize. I don't remember. No, I don't, I wasn't saying that for you to remember. I remember because I don't drink. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you don't either. You don't either. I, I stopped because of those nights. I stopped because of those crazy those crazy nights. It's been like ten years. Did you Wait, ever? You mean you and Bob got a little intimate? <laughs> yep, that's right. Well, who's to say? We were both really drunk. Anything could have happened. I don't know. But he's a he's a warm he's a warm gentle soul. That Bob Saget. Do you still see Bob at all anymore? Uh, well, we're friends, but I yeah I haven't seen him lately. But he's you know he, he's gotten uh, married. He's gotten the mar- He's all married now. Yeah, to the um, Hope, who you know I met her at the Playboy Mansion years ago. She's a Playmate of the Year, so. I think if I was married to the Playmate of the Year, I don't think I'd see my friends. <laughs> <laughs> Did her spread say turnoffs mean and people And I think they would Bob understand. Saget, Bob Saget and motorcycles. The two things she loves. <laughs> um, what, you're not, so you're not doing a show. Are you, are you, doing, a, a, are you doing any stand-up at, at your theater? Well, I, uh, I was, but, uh, you know, I, I, I do it on the road a lot. So then when I, I'm here... It's kind of, I don't feel like doing it again because yeah. I get bored. So I started, which I think you really started, you know, the podcast and then, um, and then I, I started doing them at my club and then um, at my own uh, podcast studio. Uh, it, it, well, it's John Lovett's Comedy Club and Podcast Theater and we have a studio on the second floor. So I started doing my own podcast, but I think you actually, you and, I guess Mark Marin and you know really inspired a lot of people to do it. Oh, that's that's awesome to hear. Well, you would hear about it, and then I'd look it up, and and yours is all you know, number one usually on comedy on iTunes, and then you see Mark, and you see you know, 
Yeah, that really became a good. Um, it really became a good outlet for comics because uh, essentially, you know, it, we kind of needed that. Well, you you remember no, the like, comedy boom, where it was yeah. like there were fifty stand-up specials on every channel at all times. And then that went away for a really long time. Well, I used to do Woody Allen and Lenny Bruce's routines in my college dorm, and then and then I was I was I thought after I graduated college from uh, UC Irvine that I want to be a stand-up. So, um, where the comedy uh, store was the hottest club in the country. This is like 1979, and across the street where the House of Blues is now, there was nothing but this little shack, and the comedy store owned it. So they had a free workshop on Saturday on how to be a stand-up, and the guy. That I taught it, the first thing he said was, well, you know, if you want to be a stand-up, just get into sitcoms. Don't waste your time. They're not hiring stand-ups for sitcoms. And I said, they're not? And he goes, no, they're not. And then he kept talking, and I raised my hand. He goes, yeah. I go, really? They're not hiring stand-ups for sitcoms? <laughs> you guys are really funny. you think they would. He goes, yeah, well, you'd think they would, but they don't. And so I thought, oh, gee, well, I guess I'll skip that. I don't want to waste my time, you know. I'll skip that step. And And... Of course, I didn't realize. I was twenty-two. I didn't realize they weren't hiring him. Of course, they were hiring. <laughs> they're hiring everybody for sitcoms. Yeah. They just hired. You know, Robin Williams was huge. You know, from Mork and Mindy that year. You know, that's when he got it. And then, of course, they hired everybody. You know, Roseanne and uh, um, every uh, Bill who, Cosby and Seinfeld. Uh, and, yes, yeah. I felt on and on and on. You know, they were looking for those guys to do shows with, and they still do. You know. But I started doing it about 10 years ago because my agent manager, I called him up and I said, listen, I'm not broke, but can you get me some work? I'm going to run out of money in five years. And they both said, why don't you sell your house? <laughs> and I said, well, I have a better idea. I'm going to learn how to do stand-up and fire both of them. And that, that's what I ended up doing. And then, you know, now I'm in this business. And it's, it's, it's interesting. And I have a great partner, a new partner, Mark Short, and... Um, it's interesting, but I, the thing about I stand-up, I realized, was everyone for years said, you could be a stand-up, but I didn't have anything to say. I was just so obsessed with acting. You know, so if you said, what do you want, like on, on Saturday Night Live, I said to Lauren Michaels once, I said, I think to succeed on the show, you have to have something you want to say about the world. Something, you know, I don't care what it is. But and, and he he went yeah yeah I go that's what you need even the writers you know you have to you're satir you know it's satire so you have to want want to satirize something and all I wanted to satirize was old movies I just wanted to be an actor so that's all I was thinking about and and then though after about twenty years I started getting opinions about everything else and listening to the news more and you know so then I had stuff I I, I could talk about and I think that's with these podcasts. It's the same thing. You have to have, like, opinions about the world. And I was just so completely focused on one, on acting, and that was it. And I didn't have anything to say about anything, really. Well, well did, you, did you... I mean, I just was obsessed with that, and that was it. So you skipped the, so you skipped the stand-up track at the Comedy Store in 1979. That would have been an amazing time to be there, because you, then you've got, like, Richard Pryor going through there, and then a couple years later you have Kinnison going through there, and, <coughs> and Robin, and all these amazing... Like, when the main room was probably just... Explosive, or was, was it? It wasn't just the hottest comedy club in the country. It was like the hottest club in the country. There was Studio Fifty Four in New York, and there was the Comedy Store in L.A. I mean, it was like packed. Like on a Monday night, they had an op- uh, improv potluck night. So I went to that for three weeks, and then the third week, I was waiting in line, 
and I, I'm like fifth in line, and a guy said, "Oh, uh, we're asking certain people not to come back, and you're one of them." Oh Whoa. shit! <laughs> yeah, and my I, my face just dropped, my heart just sank, you know, and I and I, I, I I'm so you know proud to say that I've never seen that guy work. <laughs> and and then the next week's when I went to the uh, the stand up workshop, you know. Well, did you find sketch then? Did you start doing sketch comedy? Like what? How did? What was the path from there to SNL? I, well, I I didn't know anything. I didn't know what to do. And um, a friend of mine who graduated about you know I was in the quarter system at Irvine, so he he graduated a quarter before me. So I said, "What do we do now?" Because it was all theater in, at Irvine. He said, "Well." You know, Los Angeles, everything's filmed, so I'm taking a class to, for acting on the camera. So I think, he goes, that's what I think we should do. I went, okay, I don't know. So so I went to this place called the Film Actors Workshop, where he was, and uh, this uh, guy, Tony Barr, ran it, who was great. And I did that for a year and a half, and, he, it, and it is a lot to learn. It, it Basically, you have, to, you have to pull it way back from stage, because when you're on stage, you know, you're in a big room, and there's no microphone, so everybody has to hear you, but you can't, like you know, yell, because then it looks like you're yelling and you can't burp like that either. And, <laughs> and so you have to learn to use your voice, you know, and, and project it and, and make it, you know, you have to hold the audience's attention, you know, but, you know, like a stand-up, but you're in a play. Whereas a movie, you know, they go, the, the, the audience is like, you know, a foot away from you. The camera's right there. The mic is, at you know, the base of your, is on your shirt. You know, they can hear you. So it's, it's the art of... Um, a subtlety, you know, and also the camera it picks up everything um, that you're thinking. So if your if your focus wavers in a scene, the camera picks it up. It picks up everything. So it picks up everything true, and it picks up everything false. You know what I mean? So it's really tricky. It's it's very subtle, and it's really hard to do, and harder. You know, a lot of stage actors, oh, no, stage is much harder. I'm like, no, it isn't. This thing is so subtle. Every little thing you do, meet, the audience reads into it. Everything. You know, so what I learned was you basically you don't do anything. And then when you, unless it means something. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. As opposed to trying to, you can't control everything either. All your tension's on the other person. And, 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 that, and when you're acting in that way, you're just, you're just kind of letting it go, and, and the camera will pick stuff up, you know. And I, I remember I was, there's a, a documentary on YouTube I was watching about um, Marilyn Monroe. It's called, um, anyway, The Last Days of Marilyn Monroe. It's about her movie. It was called Something's Gotta Give. And, 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 and they ended up, you know, scrapping the whole project. I haven't finished watching it, but they show scenes of her uh, from the movie that never got made, but they show some of the footage, you know, and you watch her and she's just like brilliant. Like you, I watch it and I go, well, no wonder she was like the biggest star because she's just, you either have a presence on film or you don't, you know, and it's very subtle. And, and there's a scene where, um, it's funny, I was just listening to the radio. It's an old, uh, my favorite wife. It was a Cary Grant, I think, movie. Who, his wife's on an island for seven years, and he thinks she's dead, so she, he gets remarried, and then his wife shows up the day he comes home, right? So that's what this movie is going to be, a remake of that. And I think they made it again with Doris Day and Rock Hudson. And Castaway. <laughs> well, Castaway, kind of, yeah. Like, that's what I was thinking, like a yeah. serious version. Yeah. But 
anyway, so they show the scene where she first comes home and she hasn't seen her. In this movie, it's like five, she's gone five years and she sees her two kids that she hasn't seen in five years. And they were like, you know, two and three and now they're like eight and seven. So it's just the camera on her and she's looking at her kids for the first time in five years. And it's just, she's unbelievably like, if you this is an actress, you know, not a sex symbol, an actress. She's unbelievably fantastic. Like, better than anybody I've ever seen. It's crazy. She was good as Meryl Streep as an actress. She's unbelievably great. Is that, can you learn that? Or do you think she just has that, she just sort of had those skills in her brain? No, she was studying acting and everything, but I think she had a talent for it, you know? Yeah. Like, she was very open and very vulnerable. So, but then it said she was going to the actor's studio. So you learn how to be effective in certain ways. And basically, uh, Alan Bates is a you know great English actor, and he said movies photograph thought, w- meaning, you know, when you're on film, like a close up, right? All they they see your face and they see your eyes. Your eye, and you ever heard that expression? Your eyes are the window to your soul. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what it is. So your your eyes are the only um, part of your brain that's visible. So if you think it, it you, you see it in somebody's eyes, you know, and you. And the camera picks it up or it doesn't. But for some reason, the camera with her picked up everything she's feeling. And, you know, I don't know how you do that. It just does or it doesn't. Um, but, for example, like an actor on a stage, you know, they go, you have to develop your voice. And when the point of your voice is that whatever you're feeling, your voice can express it. And so you can learn how to do that. And some people can do it and some can't. Or or, you can, or some learn how to do it, you know. Yeah. So, but something but like that. It, Something like SNL is basically like is essentially like live. It's like a, it's that sort of weird hybridized like. Well, it's like theater comedy, but it's televised. So there's right. you still get close ups and stuff, but it's but you're still playing to that audience there. It's a kind of right. this weird hybridized. It's a combination version. of everything, and I I loved it because it's live and the audience is there. But I figured it out. I go exactly what you're saying is how do I play it because. You're on stage live, and there's this really high energy, and the audience is there, and you have one shot at every scene. But at the same time, you're on camera. So I thought, all right, you play. I, I play to the audience that's there through the camera. So it's a combination, you know. You, so you have to have energy, but if you're too. I mean, I, I, I try. A lot of my characters, you know, they're bigger than life. I like that, but they're also real. I try to do both, you know. Like, really funny and also do the best acting I can. How long did it take you to figure out the the mechanism of that show when you were there? Um, well, I figured it out pretty quick, but but not... You know, I got better the more shows I did, you know what I mean? And, and then, you know, I learned things like... Um, uh, you know, there would be there would be like say three cameras, right? And there's three walls, and and then the, you know you call it the fourth wall. It's not there, and Lauren would just ba- block it. He goes face out, face out, face out. You know, uh, don't as much as you can. So you you would because that and that's they have cue cards, you know, and they would make changes up to the last minute. So I would when the first show I did I thought I could look at the card really quick and then look back at the person and the camera wouldn't notice but it was an idiot you see my eyes darting and I thought oh I could I thought I could you know do it fast enough and Penny Marshall was hanging around the first show and she befriended me and she called me up she goes learn your lines <laughs> I go what do you mean can you see me reading the card she goes yes 
She was like, I can tell you're reading the cards. I'm like, oh, I didn't think you could see that. <laughs> and I watched, and I saw my eyes darting. So they, if they held the, like, if you're talking to camera, like on Weekend Update, you know, do my liar character, and they held the the cards right underneath the lens, it didn't look like, it looked like you were looking in the lens even if you are looking at the card. So those I would know well, but the other stuff I would try to memorize. But the other thing was, there's three cameras, and, and you knew in your, which camera was on because there's a red light on top of the camera. So what I learned to do was to, to um, I knew which, when the camera was on me and when it wasn't. So mm-hmm. I would like, somebody would say something and then I'd wait for my camera to go on and D- time it off that. And that's a little tricky, but it's fun to do. You wait and then you give it a look and go ba-boom. Otherwise, the, the joke is missed, you know. Well, if you, so there's technical stuff that you have to do while you're doing the sketch. If you wanted to, if you wanted to go into, to, you know, if you really, if your, if your drive was to be an actor, was there any hesitation <laughs> to go after SNL? Like, did you want to do? Did you go like, oh, maybe I should just do film and do like really, you know? No, I never wanted. I never thought about being on that show. I, I, I finally, I did the film actors workshop. I went to New York for a year, and did like the Renaissance Fair, and then I did this off-off Broadway play. Lady Windermere's fan in this, you know, theater called the Nameless Theater. Didn't he, that's how off Broadway it was. It didn't even have a, the name was Nameless. <laughs> was, I think it was eighty-eight seats. And then I have a, a cousin, Bob Lovitz, who went to Juilliard. He's my age, and he wasn't getting work. He said, "I said, what do you think? Should I go back to Los Angeles?" He said, "Well, John, you're not even in Actors Equity. How can you audition?" He goes, "I'm, I'm in the union, and I'm having trouble getting work." And he was in Juilliard. And, John Hausman of this acting company, you know, and he was a great actor. So I thought, you know, I'll go back to LA and I'll start the Groundlings. And I and and I, um, I just thought I had I had nothing in New York in LA. My friend's dad said, "Oh, I have a, he's a doctor, and he goes, I have a patient that that's an agent." And then and then uh, I used to work at this clothing store, and the secretary said, "Oh, my husband has a lawyer that could help get you in SAG." So I go, "Well, that's better than nothing." I had nothing in New York. And I met the agent, nothing happened, and I got the SAG thing worked out like two years later as an extra. And um, But I started going to the Groundlings, so I stayed with my friend David, who's Lisa Kudrow's older brother. Mm-hmm. I grew up with their family. So, so I was in Woodland Hills, so I go, I'm going to go to the Groundlings. And I knew about it for five years, but I was like too afraid. Like, I want to be a comedian like Woody Allen, you know. And I'm like driving from Woodland Hills to the Groundlings Theater, which is on Melrose and you know near Poinsettia, and I was like crying. Like sobbing, I was so scared. But I get to the class and I get on stage and do something, and they go, and the teacher goes, Randy Bennett from Texas he goes, well, that was funny, but you could have done it like this, you could have done it like this, you can be funny this way, you can be funny that way. And I was like, oh my god, this is like heaven, because you know they always say stop goofing off, you know, and here they're going, you could goof off this way, you could goof <laughs> off this way, you might want to think. It's like school for class clown, and yeah. I was a class clown. And I'm like, oh, this is heaven. So I was in that, and then and then I finally I got basically. I, I did the sun class over it was spread out over a year and I got in the Sunday company there and I was in that for a year and a half and then I got voted in a main company and then and then I um in September of eighty four and then everything just happened really fast. In January of eighty five we had a new show at the Groundlings, I was doing my liar character. <coughs> we got good reviews in the um Hollywood reporter, so Jim McCauley he booked the Tonight Show, and he's the one that found all these comedians and gave them their break on the Tonight Show, and like, you know, Roseanne and Gary Shandling and Bill Maher and and everybody, Jerry Seinfeld. So, well, anyway, it's like March, middle of, third week of March, and I get a call. All these calls on my answering machine 
saying, oh, congratulations, John. That's so great. From the Groundlings. I don't know what they're talking about on a Sunday. So on Monday, I called the um, Tom Maxwell's artistic director. I said, what's going on? Everyone's congratulating me. You know, for what? And he goes, oh, he goes, we're going on The Tonight Show. I said, who? He goes, you and Tim Stack and Don Witter and you're oh, doing I know. two yeah. sketches. Oh, I know. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and I said, when? He goes, Thursday. I go, Thursday? <laughs> and we're both screaming. We're so excited. You know, and I'm like, Thursday? You know, and you're doing your liar character and you're doing a piece of Tim Stack. And I want people to understand, just for, for younger people, like, to get a call in 1985 saying you're going to do comedy on The Tonight Show <laughs> is... He's, it's your, it's it, huge, huge. It's like it's, it's your big break. Twenty million people watch that show. Like it's, fu- it was fucking huge. Like you couldn't. That was the dream. That was the dream to get on that right. show. When I was in in Tony Barr's class, you know, in '79, we'd all talk about what are you going to do when you make it. What are you going to say in the Tonight Show? Like that was the big break. And I, I go, and I just got in the company, and I go, what? Me? I was in like two out of the three sketches, you know. And, like, Phil Hartman had been in there for years, and I felt bad. I'm like, well, Phil's like the king of the groundlings. And I felt kind of weird, you know, because I thought, I remember saying to my dad, I feel kind of bad because these people have been in it for years, and I just got in, you know. And my dad goes, you're too nice, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, but we did it, and that got me an agent, and then he suggested Saturday Night Live. I said, oh, shut up. He goes, no, I'm serious. I said, you know what? I have a better idea. Why don't I land on Pluto? (laughs) Why don't I do that? (laughs) He goes, no, but I'm serious. I'm going to submit you. I go, all right, just shut up already. I don't want to hear about it. I just thought it was the most ridiculous thing ever. Because to me, it was a whole other world where those people that lived in showbiz land, and, you know, it was just another world. But Lorraine Newman had seen me in the show in The Groundlings in the summer, and she befriended me. So she recommended me to Lauren Michaels, and then, and then Mike Eisen's dad, he submitted my tape, and then I got a mo- and he got me auditions. And I, I said, get me extra work on soap, because that paid like 90 bucks a day. And at the time, I was making 45, you know, five bucks an hour. He goes, you don't want to do that, but he goes, think about it. If you really want me to do that, I will. So the next, he goes, but there'll be auditions coming up in three weeks. So the next day, I called him. I said, okay, I'll wait. So he got, sent me on all these auditions. I got everything I auditioned for. I had, I had to turn down divorce court. <laughs> and I got a, a recurring role in a series and a f- movie in the same day. And I, I got a movie with Charles Grodin. Jesus. And we shot on. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. Well, so all movie? suddenly, it's called Last Resort. Uh huh. And we shot on Catalina. And then I, I, I'd met. This, this is how silly shows was. Is, is so I got in the, the Tonight Show, right? So Jim McCauley uh, recommended me to Fred Weissman, who was in charge of casting Saturday Night Live out of Los Angeles. And. Fred was a dentist, and I met him. He goes, I don't know anything about show business, so I asked Jim, you know, who's good? And he said, John Lovett's the best sketch comedian in Los Angeles. And I said, he said that? I go, but what about Phil Hartman and Tim Stack and all, you know? I, I go, well, that's flattering. I go, I don't think so, but all right. And then he had me meet Franken and Davis, who were producing the oh, show. Yeah. And then they, And then... I was supposed to meet Lauren, but I was on Catalina. So Charles Grodin on his own called Lauren and said, hey, can you see him Friday, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. Jeez. <laughs> oh, yeah, because he, he kept wanting to stick me in the movie. I only supposed to have one scene, but he liked me. He goes, let's put him in more and more. So what do you think that was? So basically, there's some sort of a magical thing that's happening around you. Everything lined up like perfect. Where you weren't, you weren't, try, you weren't really focused. I mean, you were trying to do this thing. You were trying to do comedy. But all these external things sort of came together. Well, I went to the Groundlings because my same friend, Mike Sabatino, said, you know, you should learn to act on camera. 
we went to college together. Then he he got an agent. Mike, how did you get an agent? It's like impossible. Well, John, I got in a play and I got on stage and they saw me. He goes, "You got to get on, you got to be seen." So I went, "All right." So I thought, well, the all, there was like 250 theater companies in LA at the time. It was huge. Oh my god, that seems weird thinking about how LA is now. Yeah, there was well, how many there? I don't know how many. There I now. don't think there's that many. There was a ton. All off brought off off equity waiver theaters. But yeah. like 250, it exploded. And and it was very competitive. You, you know, you audition, maybe you get in, maybe you didn't. But I thought, well, the Groundlings, I want to do that. And they have a school. They have like a like climbing the ladder. So at least you have a shot. So my thought was, I'll go through the school. I'll get in the company. I'll get on stage. I'll get seen and get an agent and get work. But Saturday Night Live never entered my mind. Ever. It was just, like, no, it was like landing on Pluto. I said, what are you? It was my agent. He kept mentioning. I go, well, you just shut <laughs> up already. You're ridiculous, you know. Yeah, they're going to cast me, you know. And But then everyone kept saying yes. And then Lauren Michael, Charles Grodin recommended him in his own. Lorraine Newman recommended me. So Lauren wanted to meet me. And I met him. I remember my agent said, we drove up from San Pedro, you know, taking the ferry across to the Beverly Hills Hotel. Right when we stopped, Michael Caine walked in front. I'm like, the car, and I went, this is that world I've heard about, you know? <laughs> and then I met Lauren. He talked for a long time, and he goes, how old are you? I said, 28. And he goes, oh, Billy Murray was 28. And I thought, do I have the job? And then later on, Lauren said, didn't you know when I said that you had the job? I thought, well, I thought maybe, but it was, you know, I thought, no, I'm crazy, you know. Did you audition for him at all, or just off the tape A the little meeting? bit, and then, and then, no, I just met him then. And then they flew us to New York. Uh, so they from Los but the thing was it was in all the newspapers Lauren Michaels is coming back to Saturday Night Live so they had auditions you know in Canada New York LA, Chicago everywhere so they flew um, six of us from Los Angeles three men and three women I didn't know any of them so the three women were um, Jennifer Tilly oh wow and Pam Madison you know Pam no she's a great stand up great impressionist she didn't get the show. She should have got it. She's terrific. I was like, I couldn't believe she didn't get it. It was ridiculous. And um, Julie Brown, but oh. not not downtown Julie Brown. No, no, Brown. Julie Brown. Like red hair Julie Brown. The girls got a gun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Earth, Earth Girls are easy, Julie Brown. Yeah. And then the guys were myself, Dennis Miller, and Damon Waynes. Jeez. <laughs> but we were all completely unknown. So we fly there. And then there's this huge uh, Minskoff Theater in New York, and there's this huge rehearsal hall. And they say uh, they're going to cast, there's spots for five men and five women, and there's ten finalists, ten men, ten women. It's like the fi- like the Miss America contest. I mean, it was in all the papers. It was, like, huge. And then we get there, and they go, oh, one guy didn't show up. So there's nine men. There's five slots. Then you find out slowly they cast a guy named Terry Sweeney. They cast Randy Quaid. Yeah. They already cast Robert Downey Jr., and they already cast Anthony Michael Hall. Oh, that was that season. <clears throat> yeah. So then they go, there's one spot open for not out of the nine of you. And and so I, w- I remember we're waiting outside, and Damon Wayne is going, you know, if I get it, I get it. I don't, I don't. I don't care. He goes in. He comes out 15 minutes later, drained, sweating. His <laughs> eyes are glossed over. I'm like, what happened to him? You know, he just looked like, you know, like he just blew it. I go in. 
I do my characters, and Lauren says, do you, well, do you have anything else? I said, well, and I thought, yeah, I just started writing a little stand-up routine that I was doing at the Groundlings, but Fred Weissman said, you know, who's casting Annabelle, he said, I go, do you think I should do that? He goes, no, because you're competing against other professional stand-ups, like Dennis Miller. Mm-hmm. Right? So I said, okay, but then Lauren's asking for more. So I thought, well, I better do it. So I started doing it, and nobody's laughing. And then I thought, just finish to the end. So I finished. No one laughed. They were laughing a little bit. And before we went in, they said, you know, don't worry. Nobody, they don't laugh much. Don't worry about it. But when I was doing my characters, they were laughing, like half of them. So I thought, well, this is good. They're laughing. And then I did that. And then I just was like, this is a disaster. And I left the room. And I was just like Damon, sweating. (laughs) My eyes are glossed over. I I just blew the biggest chance of my life. And Pam Madison says, you know, John, uh, I'm going to go across the street to a St. Patrick's Cathedral to light a candle, you know, and pray that I get the show. Do you want to go with me? And I'm thinking, well, I'm Jewish. I'm like, yes, I'll go. <laughs> I go, I don't care anything. And I'm in there lighting a candle. I go, Jesus, if you give me the show, I'll, I'll, I'll say you're the son of God. <laughs> the next day, they put us on tape. And then, can I just back you up before you say anything? Yeah. How did Dennis Miller do? Well, that's the thing. The next day, I, I'm usually late. I wasn't today for your show. <laughs> so they go be there four thirty. So I get there like four twenty, and um, and I'm waiting audition. And I and I waited for four hours before I finally, you know. And so I'm watching. Uh, I liked Humphrey Bogart, and that's on TV. So I'm watching that. I'm so nervous for an hour it's like okay this will help me relax so I'm watching that I'm waiting and I'm waiting then I start getting sleepy you know and you're just waiting and waiting you know and then finally I went into the control booth and I see Dennis Miller on on camera and he's being very loose and very funny so I thought oh I'll, I'll be like that so finally they call me in and before I went in I saw Randy Quaid who I'd met once before and I said hey uh, I, I had this bit I did at the Growlings about a soldier in World War II to how he ended up there and there was a piece I did with Tim Stack and Tim is 6'4 and so is Randy but but the point uh, Tim Tim did it on his own and then when I got in the groundlings I said hey can I be in that piece with you so he, we wrote a piece together Tim was always great to me so I, I go in the room and Lauren goes do you want to do the liar again I go well I kind of already did he goes yeah that's true and, I, and, and I'm talking and then he goes Randy go up next to John so Randy's standing next to me and stuff. And he goes, what do you want to do? I go, I don't know. I don't really have anything else. And then Randy goes, what, why don't you tell me that thing about your grandmother, which was, you know, I ended up in the war and my grandmother took my place, you know. And it was very silly. So at one point, Randy's supposed to be a captain. I go, well, you see, captain. And I looked up at Randy. And in my mind, I, I thought, I kind of did a double take. Like I looked up at him and then I kind of jerked my head. I went, oh. Because I didn't say, oh, but I went, I looked like my mouth dropped open. I looked up and I thought, oh, that's funny that he's he's on my left and he's 6'4", just like Tim. So I'm looking at the exact same spot, you know, way up high. And I bring that up because, and then and then they sent us home and I thought, there's no way I got the show. I'm a one out of nine. They're going to pick me. And that, so I went home like on a Sunday and I started thinking, all right, I'm, I'm going to write more stuff for the Growlings. I'm going to start trying to do stand up, you know. And on Thursday, I get a call, and Lorraine Newman goes, you got it. And I go, I did? <laughs> I go, you're kidding. She goes, you got it. And then she goes, and you overcame a lot. And I said, 
oh, because I'm Jewish, right? <laughs> yeah. And she said, yep. <laughs> I went, okay. And then I called the producer and I said, Dynamite, this girl. And I said, well, then I got the show. And they go, oh, they, she shouldn't have told you that. We don't know yet. Uh. I'm like, what? And they're always like that on SNL. They never like told you. They always kept you kind of in the dark about everything. So I called Charles Grodin and I said, Lorraine Newman just called me. And I go, can I ask you a favor? He goes, yeah, sure. And he was like a mentor to me. He was really nice to me and great to me. I, I was 28 and he was like, you know, 40 something or 50. Or so I said, listen, uh, Lorraine Newman just called me and said I got the show and I called the producer and they said I don't have it. I go, can you find out for me if I have the show or not? I go, I just, I'm like dying. He goes, yeah, okay. He goes, okay, I'll call you right back. So five minutes later, he calls me. He goes, you got it. Oh, that's awesome. I, go, I did? He goes, yeah. And I went, oh, my God. And I drove down to the Groundlings Theater. And my teacher, Randy Bennett, was my main teacher there. Phyllis Katz taught me song, but Randy was my main teacher. Song improv, Phyllis taught it. But he's teaching class. I go, Randy. He goes, what? I go, I got it. He goes, what? I go, I got Saturday Night Live. He goes, you got it? I go, I got it. <laughs> And he started, he goes, oh, my God. He starts crying, like sobbing. You got it. You got it. You know, it was such a huge emotional thing, you know. Because I had one job before, and I was 25 for two weeks on the paper chase. That was it. Now I'm 28, you know. And I just, you know, and I got it. And, was... and now I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and then some other things happened, and then here you are. Yeah. But that was the season. So that was the Randy, was that, that was the Randy Quaid, Robert Downey Jr., season was yeah. that was that post that one season with Billy Crystal and Christopher Guest and Harry Shearer yeah right after that right after that so then they basically did they were 84 85 and then this was 85 86 and then they pretty much purged everyone else but you right well they they kept myself and Dennis Miller and uh, Nora Dunn but you know what happened was we did the shows and and then like the second show I did my liar character and then and then the next week, uh, Robert Smigel did his Triumph the Dog. It was his first year working. He said, John, some electrician came up to Lauren's office and said, that liar thing is the funniest thing I've seen in this show in years or something like that. So Lauren went, oh. So then he had he put me together with A. Whitney Brown, who was a great comic. Yeah, of course. And, and then Whitney and I would write it together. And I would thank God because I didn't know what to do with it after the first time I did it. I didn't have anything. And I really learned how to write comedy and jokes from Whitney. And we were a great team. And I, after that, I really give the credit 50-50 because we wrote it together, you know. And then um, we'd had a lot of good shows and the whole country's imitating the liar. And then everyone was coming together. And so I remember TV Guide, we'd already done 11 shows, but the review and TV Guide reviewed like the first three. Didn't mention that my character now is a huge hit. We didn't mention anything good, you know, and really slammed it. So the last show was hosted by... Uh, Angelica Houston, who it's funny. I just saw her. She just wrote a book about her life. It's funny. I, I hadn't seen her. In, um, anyway, they had a book party. I just saw her like last week. So she, so she hosted, and then and then they had Billy Martin, the you know baseball player and Yankees oh, yeah. manager, as a, as a uh, like a guest star. So they wrote a sketch at the end of the show where Billy's mad that he's not wasn't in the show more. So, you know, and he was known for a bad temper. And he was the sweetest guy. He was so nice. But I know he got in a lot of fights, but he couldn't have been sweeter. So anyway, they, they wrote a sketch. They go, let's write a sketch. Billy's mad that he's not in the show as much, so he decides to burn down the studio. <laughs> so they did the sketch, and, like, there's a big fire. And, they, and, the, and then you watch it, and you go, and Lauren says to the writer, she goes, here, wait for me in the writer's room where the fire is. And then he goes, no, no, John, uh, go to my limo. 
Right. And then they rolled the credits and they had a question mark after everybody's name. Oh, I, remember that. I remember that. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty, and a lot of people were pissed. But I didn't even know if I was coming back to the show. I, they didn't tell us anything. And I remember that summer, I said, Lauren, am I coming back? He goes, well, yeah, of course. I go, well, I don't know. You, no one told me anything. I have no idea, nothing, you know. It was always like that. And you go, are you coming back? And you fight. You just, they always kind of kept you on edge, hmm. you know, the whole time. You never knew if you had your job or not or it sounds like you're one of those people that everyone wants to help and be nice to. What would you attribute that to? Are you just are you just in general? Are you you know seem like a nice guy? Did you think that's that's what it is? Like oh, we really like John. He's a sweet guy. Well, we should... I mean, it, it, that was like the last seven. Um, after college, I had one job for two weeks. I, I so it wasn't like everyone was helping me. I just. I mean, yeah, I'm nice, but I think they thought I was really funny. Yeah. But and 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 you know they are like oh, you you have it you have that thing. Me personally, I didn't know if I did. I just thought, am I? I'd always go, am I professional yet? Am I professional actor yet? Am I? That's how I was always thinking. So I was always just trying to get better and wanting to be funny and hoping that I was. But I didn't know if if I had the talent. I I didn't know. You know I, you know. Um, I remember the very first sketch, and uh, that I was on, and I and and it was kind of like a talk show format, and and Terry Sweeney spoke first, and Nora and Denitra Vance, and and Nora Dunn, and I think Joan, and I'm going, God, in my mind, I go, they look so confident, I'm so nervous, you know, and you can see it, I'm like going, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> I, <clears throat> I was so nervous, you know, and I, and I remember thinking, you know what, I'll find out if I have it or I don't. We went on the ninth floor. They had these um, uh, this glass case, and the ninth floor is where the bleachers are. The studio's on the eighth floor, but it's the eighth and ninth floor. And then the bleacher seats are, uh, you know, the rafters are on the ninth floor. So you'd walk into this down the hallway from the elevators, and then you walk in to where the seats are. And on the right, there was this uh, glass case, and in the case was um, a, a John on a mannequin was John Belushi's B costume, and next to him there was a, a Eddie Murphy's Gumby costume, like a life <laughs> with a life mask of Eddie Murphy, so it looked like Eddie frozen in the case. And I remember looking at that, going, "What am I going to do? I mean, that, that's I can't be Eddie Murphy or John Belushi. They're huge stars. Like, what am I going to do?" And I just thought, "Well, I'll just be funny the way I'm funny." And and even the first thing I wrote on the show, which Lauren I thought was funny, but Lauren wouldn't let me do it, is like was like an update. I go, "Hi, I'm John Lovitz." Which means what? Nothing. And that's my point. Who am I? Why did he hire me? I mean, the guy that hired John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and Gilder Adam, now he hires me? I go, what is he, lost it? I think he's crazy. I don't, I don't get it. I mean, I'm here. And then you hear Lauren in the last week, go, all right, John, that's enough. I go, <laughs> I go no, but seriously, I go, have you just gone nuts? I mean, me? I mean, who am I? I all right, cut his mic. No way. <laughs> you know, and then they cut the mic, and then you hear, like, live from New York. It's <laughs> and it was very self deprecating, but he didn't want to. I guess he didn't like it because he, you know, I was saying, like, well, why did you hire me? What are you thinking? You know? Right. And he, let me tell you something. Diana Minot, who I love, is a producer in the show, a great friend. She goes, she says to me, John, here's who we think's going to make it the first season after they cast everybody. She says, it'll be Robert Downey, Joan Cusack, Randy Quaid, Denitra, and probably Terry Sweeney and Nora. And I'm just looking, I'm like, oh, thanks. Okay. Well, because Terry, Terry, Terry Sweeney was. Didn't mention me. <laughs> to me. I go, you're the producer of the show. You're saying you don't expect me to make it, you know. Terry, Terry I was Sweeney the was... last guy they expected to break through. They did not expect that. 
Terry Sweeney was had did really broad. Like he did Nancy Reagan, and he did really big yeah. characters. And he's very funny. Yeah. I, I thought they all did well. I mean, I thought as the season went on, I thought the cast. You know, we didn't know each other. Robert and and um, Anthony Michael Hall were friends, but the, I didn't know anybody. I met Randy once. I didn't know anybody. We didn't know each other. But I thought it really we really came together. I was sad that they weren't back. It was weird my second year. I knew Phil and Nora and Dennis, but I didn't know the rest of them. And I was just like, this is just weird. Like, where <laughs> are they? You know, it's going back to work and everybody's new. And you're like, yeah. Ugh. What's that same feeling? Is Was it the same feeling you had when you got on The Tonight Show? And you're like, what? But every, what about everyone else? Well, I felt bad that, I mean, I was thrilled to be on it. But, you know, I had just gotten into the company. You know, and then I got Saturday Night Live, and Paul Rubens, you know, Pee Wee Herman. Yeah, of course, you know, Paul, yeah. He'd been in the ground. Leagues, and he, I remember he came up to me, and after I got Saturday Night Live, he goes, my God, he goes, I've never seen it, it happen this fast for anybody. Wow. Yeah, I go, yeah, but it's, I go, it's 13 years since I, you know, I was 15 doing plays in school, and I just kept going. I mean, it didn't seem fast to me. Being in the groundlings, it was fast, though, he meant. Right. I just got in the company in September, and a year later, I'm on SNL. I mean, it was just, and the, the only... Before that, they'd cast you know Lorraine Newman from the Groundlings, and Tom Maxwell. He goes, he's very funny. He goes, boy, it's just like clockwork here at the Groundlings. Every ten years, somebody gets. <laughs> <laughs> and then for a while, it was all. It, then it was, it was pretty much like go on the Groundlings and then get on SNL. That was kind of the. It was sort of like the feeder of you know then the Chris Kattan. Well, it became. The- I got it. At, you know because Lauren had come, left for five years and come back, and he would go to the Groundlings to look for talent. You know, and then. So they, they kept Nora and Dennis Miller and myself, and then they said, who do you work well with? So I recommended uh, Phil Hartman and Tim Stack and Lynn Stewart, who is Miss Yvonne and Pee Wee Herman, and Tress yep. McNeil, who's like, does a lot of voice on the... On the yeah, anyway. Tress. And they, they yeah. were, though, to me, those four were, were the best at the Groundlings. That's who I looked up to. Everybody looked up to them. And they ended up casting, you know, Phil. And, um, and then there was that cast for eight year, or four years, then they brought in Mike Myers the last year and a half. But that's why we did well because it was, there was only eight of us. It was myself, the men, me, Dennis, uh, Dana Carvey, and and, and uh, uh, Kevin Nealon. Wait, Kevin Nealon, Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman, Dennis Miller, and myself, the five men, and the women were Nora Dunn, and then um, Jen Hooks and Victoria Jackson. So we were the eight main people. There's just eight, like there was in the original five years for like yeah. four years. So we and then they had. A Whitney Brown and Al Franken as feature players, and that was it. So Senator we got to Al do Franken. Yeah, now he's a senator. <laughs> right. It's amazing. I uh, mean, I always look at. That, I think back, and I, I think uh, there's something. The the thing about Phil Hartman wasn't just how amazing he was, his character work, but he just seemed like a guy you wanted to just be around a lot. He was. He was. He was the nicest guy in the world, and. What happened in 1984 was they had the Olympics in Los Angeles. So they, they then they had a thing called the Olympics Arts Festivals, and they funded, you know, a lot of arts projects, and they funded nine equity waiver theaters to do an original show, and they gave you money to, you know, produce a show. So the Groundlings was one of the nine theaters they picked, and then the Groundlings decided they were going to do a show based on a character Phil Hartman did called Chick Hazard. Which was a spoof of like a you know Humphrey Bogart detective yeah. from the forties and that kind of thing. So 
they did the show, and then I got asked to under. I'd been in the Sunday company a year, and then you, you after six months you can vote in the main company. I didn't get in the first six months, and then the second six months, you know, it was a year, and I still didn't get in, and I kind of felt like you know some of the people got in. I think I'm better than, but so Tom Maxwell said, well, you know, he goes, you didn't, you had problems with so and so. I don't want to say who and so and so, and I'm like. Well, I go, they're mentally ill. <laughs> I go, everyone has problems with them. I go, I just happen to be the first. I go, they're nuts. You know, I go, I'm sorry. I don't get along with nuts. I go, I, go, I, go, I don't get along with people who are mentally ill. I just don't. They sure. seek me out and I just fight with them. <laughs> and everyone, after me, everyone had problems with them. Like, everybody. So he said, well, why don't you understudy this part and in the chick hazard and because uh, so-and-so wants some time off so we we got to get an understudy. So why don't you do that? And he goes, I'm the artistic director. I've never worked with you. I really don't know you. So why don't we... Um, he goes, if you're going to be in the company, you're going to be working with me. So why don't we see how we work together? You could understudy this part, and we'll see how we work together and see how it goes. Does that sound fair? I said, yes. I go, that sounds more than fair. I go, that that, that sounds great. That's great. That's perfectly fair. Let, let's do that. So... So I understudied this part. Oh, and I said, by the way, what, what made you pick me anyway to understudy the part? He goes, well, it was Phil's idea. I go, Phil knows who I am? Aww. Because Phil was like this giant star at the ground. He's like, nobody had money. He had a house. He had a car. Yeah. He had a real job, a new car, you know, a great car. New, you know, we didn't have a dime. And I remember he, in the groundlings, he's walking down this hallway where these lockers are. And I'd never met him, you know. Never spoken to him, never met him. So I said, uh, I go, oh, hey. Phil, I go, I'm, and he was in costume and he looked like a movie star, you know, in this trench coat and a hat and makeup. I go, oh, hey, Phil, I'm John Love. He goes, yeah, I know who you are, John. I go, you do? He goes, yeah, I've seen your work. I think you're great. I go, well, thanks for recommending me for, to understand the party. He goes, oh, yeah, you'll be fantastic. And he walked on by, and in my head, I thought, oh, my God, Phil Hartman spoke to me. I mean, that's how big he was. And he was nine years older, and I just, so from that moment on, you know, I just like going, he's the best. So I, and he was like nine years older. So he's like the big brother. I never, I, I had all sisters. And, and David was like my brother, but I always wanted a big brother. So he became that to me. And I was just idolized. I go, Phil, 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 like a puppy dog. You're the best. You're the, you know. So imagine you got this guy who's like, just says, you're, the, you know, you're the shit. You're the king. You know, you're like, oh. So one day he goes, hey, do you want to come to my house? I go, yeah. Oh, I kept saying, I want to see your house, Phil. So I went over. He goes, you know, you're the first person from the Growlings I've ever had to my house. I go, I am? I go, why? He goes, well, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm just very private. I don't have people over. And so we became like brothers, you know, and, and, and really, really close, you know. So, of course, when he died, it was just like the worst thing ever. But um, he he's just the nicest guy in the world. And he could imitate anybody. Anyway, I mean, he's a <coughs> real genius. His brother, his brother was a music manager. So his brother said, um, you know the group America? He did the yeah. album cover. Yeah. yeah did so his brother managed America. So he goes, hey, can you draw an album cover? We're going to do like the, the best of America. And I asked his brother, he goes, I go, it was amazing. He goes, yes. I said, Phil, tr- draw something. So Phil, he goes, he shows me, his brother John goes, he shows me this thing. He goes, you mean something like this? And John said, he said, something like this. Exactly this. Are you kidding? And he became like a graphic artist. That's yeah. how he made money. And he the, the the logo for Crosby, Stills and Nash, he designed that. Oh, man. I and mean, he did everything. So he was set already. Like, yeah, then he got in the Growlings. I said, how did he end up in the Growlings? And they tell the story about 
some he someone was having a birthday party. So they went to the Growlings, and Phil was celebrating somebody's birthday, a group of friends. They went to the Growlings, watched the show, then there was an intermission. And they're backstage, and they said, we hear everybody in the audience laughing. And we go, we go, we go what's everyone laughing at? Where there's an intermission, no one's on stage. And they said, we walked out, and there's Phil on stage, like, entertaining oh, everybody. And, and he was really funny. They go, hey, you want to be in the group? He goes, okay. <laughs> 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 and he could just do it, you know. Well, and he was like Jim Carrey. I always said he and Jim Carrey, the only two guys I know of that can, you know, ch- physically change their face and look like the character they're playing without any makeup. I mean, I don't know how the hell you do that, but they can do it. Jim can do it, and Phil could do it, you know. And then, and then he just, you know, and then he ro- co- became best friends with Paul Rubens and co-wrote Pee Wee's, you know, Big Adventure and. And um, you were in his audition uh, for SNL, uh, like yeah. the Chick Hazard bit, right? Kind of like when you did it and you had a... Uh, yeah, he started doing it. And I liked old movies, too. So, sorry, I'm chewing on That's okay. handy. <laughs> I forget. So, we'd always go, you know, just cross that line. You better wish I hadn't wife for five cents. I'd, yeah, what would you do for a nickel? You know, mm. no, for two cents. I'd, yeah, what would you do for a nickel? <laughs> we would always do that. So, I said, Phil, well, let's... let's Let's write a sketch doing that style. So we wrote that sketch. Uh, it was basically my, my idea, but I said, what we wrote together. I said, one more mission where I'm like the head of a studio, and he's a, he's a, a, a B-movie actor doing all these World War II movies, playing a pilot. And I got to fire him because he's gone crazy because he really thinks he's a pilot, you know. So call one more mission, and we wrote it together. That, that was like, he always says, favorite sketch. sketch. But that, you can see us doing that thing back and forth and... God, he was so funny in it. Was did he was he just naturally good at everything and confident and or did you sense like oh he's just like the rest of us he's scared of things and he's insecure? Or... No, yeah, he didn't. Be- he was not that confident. He didn't believe in himself. He got offered the show actually, and he turned it down. And then he changed his mind and said yes. So I said, oh, is it because of me? I convinced you to do it, and he's like, no. <laughs> I thought for sure it was me. He goes, no. I go, oh, what was it? He goes, well. Joel Silver, um, we, we got we did this movie Jumpa Jack Flash, and I met Joel Silver. Penny Marshall put me in it, and she goes, "I need people that improvise." But I think Phil got the movie on his own anyway. Yeah. And then I uh, became friends with Joel, and I kept saying, "You got to meet Phil Hartman. This guy's so funny." And so we met. I introduced him to Joel and stuff. So and we all became friends. So Joel, he said, Joel called me up and said, "Are you crazy? You got to do it." But he, I think what I he didn't change his mind because of me but I think if, if if I thought what did I do I made him believe in himself because I thought well everyone thought he was amazing but he didn't and I go what do you mean you're Phil Hartman you're like amazing you you know Lawrence said what do you think of Phil Hartman I go I said well if you think I'm good I go you should see Phil Hartman he's way better than me he's a genius you know and that's how I felt you know I said to be you know and Lauren goes, well, how long has he been in the Groundlings? I said, 11 years. <laughs> he goes, well, John, if he hasn't made it by now, don't you think there's a reason? I said, yeah, I guess. But I thought, well, what could it be? Because I go, how could you be that talented and not, you know? Because in the Groundlings, everyone looked up to him. Even, you know, yes, Tim Stack was one of the main guys I looked up to. And I said, Tim, everyone was good. But wasn't Phil like amazing and improv? Phil, and I go, no offense to you, but wasn't he? he goes, and Tim goes, yeah, it's not offend me, John. He goes, yes, he was on a whole nother level. He was just, and Tim was hilarious. 
But Phil would say stuff in improvs that you never knew what he was going to say, and it was just hilarious, you know, and just off the wall. So I, I, I felt like I kind of made him believe in himself, you know. That's kind of amazing. Even though, because I go, how can you not believe? You know, it's like, it's, you're, you're a sprinter, and, and Usain Bolt goes, I don't know if I'm that fast. <laughs> you go, Usain, you're the fastest guy in the team. You're, 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 you know, I'm running, you know, 10, and you're running nine, nine five. I go, you're, you're like way faster than me. I go, what are you talking about? Now I'm on the Olympics. Come on. It's like that. Getting the Olympics. They go, do you know anyone else who can run fast? I go, yeah, my friend Usain Bolt. I go, you think I'm fast? This guy's twice as fast as me. I mean, he's way faster than me. And that's what it was like with Phil. So I'm like, how do you not? And anyway, he did the show, but then he wouldn't write his characters. It was very, he would just do characters. And he could do characters and be a leading man. But for some reason, he he didn't do it. And I'd say, why aren't you doing this? What are you, why are you doing Chick Hazard? He did it once. He goes, nah, I'm saving it. I'm going to save it. <laughs> Oh, but like he'd be in his office. I'd walk in. I go, "What are you doing?" Oh, hi, John. I'm reading a magazine on about fly fishing. <laughs> Just out of the blue. Three weeks later, I walk in his office. What are you doing? I'm making flies. <laughs> but like he'd make them perfect. Like he'd been making it forever. I go, "How do you?" And he would just immerse himself in something for like three months and like become an expert at it, and then get bored and move on to the next thing. You know, wow. and. But the nicest guy, you know. You ask anybody ever, uh, from uh, Saturday Night Live to News Radio to uh, the Groundlings, everybody loved Phil. He was one and of he was that guy. All the women loved him, and all the guys wanted to be, you know, his best friend. He was one of the, one of those people. You know? he, he was he was a, he was a guy whose death I think people just like the world took really hard. Like even if you didn't know him, because you felt like you knew him, and he yeah. certainly. You, you know, and and you lo- and you loved him. You loved him on The Simpsons and SNL, and any time he popped up in a movie. And so when it was like, no, how can that? How can he not be alive? Yeah, it was a very, very, um, very warm person. I think that came across. So yeah, it was the worst thing that ever happened in my life. And I was basically depressed for five years after that. I just because everything I wanted to do, I wanted to do with Phil. You know, I go, what about me and Phil? Phil, let's do this. Phil, let's do this. Let you know. And then finally, I was in my driveway. And I went, I'm still alive, you know. And then that's when I started going, I got to do something. I mean, I did not do anything, but I was depressed. So I started doing stand-up, you know. I worked and did stuff, but I believe me, I was just not, you know. And, and I'm still not over it, to be honest. I'll never get over it. It's just the worst thing ever. But, you know, what are you going to do? I'm still alive. Yeah. And do you appreciate that? Hmm. That I'm still alive? Yeah. Yeah. Or do you? does every part of you sort of feel like when you got the Tonight Show, where you're like, why why, why I get to be the one? Like, does that, did that ever hit you in a weird way? Oh, yeah. When someone's murdered that you're that close to, and I spoke to other of his friends, it really freaks you out, and you start, it's scary. And, and you start thinking, am I going to be murdered? Am I gonna? Can I just be driving along and poof, I'm gone? Because that's what it's like. Yeah. For anybody who loses somebody suddenly, you know, like the Paul Walker, you know, I didn't know the guy, but I feel horrible. I I never met the guy, but I see his movies. He's forty years old. He has a fifteen year old daughter, and just he wasn't even driving and he's gone. Yeah. He was just doing a charity. That's what makes it worse. You find out he's like this great guy, really charitable, and now he's gone. Yeah. And you're like, oh my god, it, and it's that's it's the worst because you don't say. 
you can't prepare for it. You don't get to say goodbye. You don't. It's just the guy's gone. That's it. Yeah. So you're in shock, and so it's horrible for anybody who loses someone suddenly like that, whether the murder or an accident. You know, his family. It's like it'll it'll take them. It's awful, and his daughter. You know, it'll take them years to. You know. Yeah, because I just I lost my dad a month ago, and it was very sudden. But it, and not oh, that sorry. I. Oh, that's okay. No, no, no. It's 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 good to it's good to talk about it because, but but I still I feel, I feel like it wasn't as horrible as it was. It's not as bad as someone like Phil or Paul or someone who's young. Where you know, my dad was seventy two, and when they you know when you're when people start getting to their seventies and eighties, it's sort of like oh, it's bonus time. You know, it's like oh, he's had oh, he had a heart attack. Well, that's not. I didn't expect it to happen, but part of your brain goes, well, this kind of happens as people well, get ha- older. I lost my dad. He was 70, and I, I, I learned a lot, of, a lot about it. And um, I learned, because it was out of the blue, and I'm like, oh, man, you know, and, and I thought, what am I supposed to do? And I just felt lost for like seven months. And then I was looking at the ocean. He goes, the point of life is to learn everything you can and teach others what you've learned, you know. And I think everything's connected. So I don't think it's a coincidence that we're talking about this and then you just said your dad passed away. I, I don't know. It's just weird because I always feel like when I, I learn so much about it that I'm supposed to, like, help when people talk about you. Yeah. I'm supposed to go, okay, well, I have to tell you this, <laughs> yeah. you know. And all this, I mean, a lot of stuff happened and... Stuff happened to me that, you know, you could say, well, you imagine whatever, but it's the same stuff that happen- that's happened to people that have, like, clinically died and come back. Mm-hmm. And then I've had this stuff happen to me, and it's it's just weird. I don't know what it is, and then I read about it in books, you know. But I, I think there's something else, and I think that, you know, I mean, I, 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 I guarantee you someone will come to you this and they go, oh, I dreamed about your dad, your, your father, right? Yeah. And he, I, and he was younger, right? And they're like, yeah, how'd you know? They go, I heard his voice. I go, in your right ear? Yeah, how'd you know? You know what I mean? It's, it's always the same. Stuff, yeah. They come back younger. He's with, it's like his, and I, I really think he's with the people that went before and all that. You know, and you could say, well, that's good you think that. Some people believe that, some don't. I do, just some stuff. And, and I kind of feel like he's, what's beyond uh, our understanding is he, for whatever reason, he learned everything he was supposed to learn and now he's on to the next thing. And you're still here. We're all here still because we have more to learn. Sure, sure. And and then once we do, we're they, you're taken out. Well, as, de- as, as, as like I said, as hard as it is, and I've been kind of going through this weird thing where I'm just I'm very I've been very forgetful for the past month. Just like really simple things. I'm like, oh, I can't remember this person's name who is a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. And it's just no, like that's this normal. Kind of... That's normal because you're kind of in shock and it happens. That happened to me with Phil. My memory, I, I forgot a lot of stuff. Well, that's got to be that. I mean, that with is... Phil, my memory really got people go. I remember. I go. It's, I, my memory got fucked up after he died. I mean, when someone when someone dies a natural death, it's bad enough. But when someone is sort of like ripped away, like Phil or like Paul or like any like anyone else who's young that yeah. doesn't that shouldn't die yet, then you're then it then it. I would imagine it's even worse because it's like this didn't have to happen. This wasn't supposed to be the thing. Yeah, and that, you keep going back. Go, what happened? What happened? And because somehow you you think if you can figure out what happened, you can prevent it. You know, and of course you can't, but. Uh, I'll tell you a great book. The, the only thing that helped me was a book, uh, and if you're listening, the, called uh, a friend got me called "Many Lives, Many Masters" by Brian L. Weiss. Okay. So if I were you, I'd, I I would get that book. And okay. It uh, kind of it kind of takes you out of your grief, and it's like you're you know 
grief is, I believe me, unfortunately, I understand it. It's like very constricting, and it's like you're in the forest. You feel very, it makes you feel very isolated, and you see the world going on around you, and then you're like, yeah, but don't they know? But you're like in a cocoon of grief. You know, you just feel I, isolated. So this book, it's like being in the forest, and you can't see anything, and the trees are 100 feet tall, and you're like, where am I? And it's like, like a helicopter landing and saying, get in. And then the helicopter rises above the trees and way high, and then you can see everything 360. And it just the book, it just makes you feel like, oh, this is all part of this bigger thing that we're all part of. I get it. It makes you feel a little less sad, you know. Well, that's good. I I, I don't feel I, I feel like I have a pretty good, you know, like I I get sad, like I was sad last night, and I go, well, I'll just be sad tonight. I'm supposed to be sad now. And then, that's right. Whenever you feel sad or you feel sad or you cry, yeah, you just let it out. The worst thing you could do is 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 not is not cry when you feel it and, and hold it in. And the other worst thing you can do is not talk about it. We might find it and talk about it. I'm like, what the fuck? Did, hello? Are you going to pretend this didn't just happen? Yeah. You know, that's the worst thing because your family or whatever, they're all isolating and you got to call them up and go, let's, let's talk. We need to, you know, it's too big of a deal. You know, it's like, it's your father. It's like the big, and then the other thing would be your mother. Yeah. So it's, it's too big of a thing. The handle alone. So you need to like all support each other and hold each other up. And that's how you get through it. Yeah. And, and the other thing I learned is when my mind, sorry. No, please. It'll help is, is I learned you go, well, he, I said this about Phil after his funeral. I go, well, he may be gone, but he's still my friend. You know, so it's like he, your dad may be gone. He's still your dad. Of course. And then you go, oh, oh, okay. I know. But sometimes you think, oh, he's dead. So that's it. He's, I don't have a dad. No, 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 no. He's still your dad. And believe me, he's, you know. I still hear my dad, and he's still giving me shit. <laughs> <laughs> or you'll say something, and go, "Oh, that was my dad." Like you, you'll feel, you'll go, "That's something he would have said." That's- yeah, you start acting more like them in, in the beginning. I'm sure you've done doing stuff because you miss them, and you start acting like them. You start talking like them. It's very strange. Well, I did this. I did this weird thing. Um, uh, maybe like a week after, a couple weeks after it happened, where I I was driving, and I just basically started acting out the phone call. And imitating my dad, just knowing exactly, because he answered the phone exactly the same way every time, and he yeah, asked a lot. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, and I, so I kind of had this weird back and forth just out loud by myself, just knowing exactly what he would say. But it's said. not but, weird. It's normal that you did that. And, yeah, I think it's fine. Because the, the, the thing you miss most, you, you usually go, I just want to talk to him one more time, just to have closure. And, and I say to people, listen, you know the person, you know, like your dad, you know him so well. You could have a full-on conversation. You did it out loud, but in your mind, anything you want to talk about. And I says like, go to, you know, I like going like you go to a, like oh in Santa Monica in the, in the sun. Oh yeah, you sit on a bench or wherever you like. I don't know some spot where you like to just sit and relax and close your eyes. I don't know where that is for you, but wherever that is, and you're alone, and then in your mind you go, okay, let's have a conversation. You go, I, I want to talk to you about this, and then you'll hear his voice in your mind without forcing it. And you have a whole conversation, and, and it's very weird, but you know exactly what he would say. It, it, you don't even have to try to make it up. It'll just be there. It's just I totally there. get why that would be not. I totally get why that would be great. And, and I guess yeah, the, and it makes you, you know. Or you could say, come visit me in my dream tonight, and then they come. Do you still do that with, do you still have that sometimes with, like, Phil? And, yeah, I've done it, and then I, they show up. Oh, that's really cool. I like that. I, and, I, you know, you could say it's me imagining it, but, you know. All right, I don't care. It's, it's. I was worried that the dreams would. Make... I'm always aware of it though, and then I have a conversation, and I remember the whole thing. It's not like a regular dream. I was worried that I would wake up and then the dream after the dream, and it'd be really sad. Like, oh, it's not. He's not here anymore. 
but I would wake up kind of feeling like, nah, I feel, yeah, I feel kind of nice. Like it's it's not bad. Have it's you not... dreamt of him? Oh yeah, yeah, did he yeah. Look younger. Um, well, he looked. He looked, yeah. Actually, he did look a bit younger, but yeah. you know, in my in my dreams, in he his was forties, right? Yeah, some some yeah, some around there. How did I know that? I don't know, because you were there. You've been there. You've been there. Yeah, no, I always look younger, and he'll keep getting younger. Oh, that's weird. That's what I saw my dad. It was like it was like he was it was like he was thirty or twenty nine or something. It's really weird. Do you talk about it on stage at all, or do you not? Do you not? Not really. I don't. I don't because it's not really funny. <laughs> I've been talking about it on stage, which I, I it's and it is sort of a dicey. Some parts of it are funny, and then I'm sort of experimenting. Well, if with you can be funny, you know, with it, that's fine. I I, I don't know how it'd be funny. I I mean, it is it is a challenge because once you start talking about. You know, people immediately sort of get like, Ugh, when you're like, so my dad died, and they immediately go like, Ugh, and you have to go, no, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. You know, like this happens and it's okay. But it, uh, you know, part part of it is it's cathartic for me, and part of it is it's there's also the sort of comedy challenge of can I m- find something about this that's human and relatable, and ultimately can I make other people feel okay about like you know if they lost someone or they're gonna lose someone like. It sucks, but it's okay. This is a part of life, and we can all yeah. talk about it, and we don't have to be freaked, you know, too freaked out about it. Well, I, yeah, I mean, if you can do it, that's great. I, I, I wouldn't be good at that on stage, but I do think it's important to talk about because, because then it makes it less um, frightening. Because everyone thinks about it, you know, death. I mean, yeah, and even if you say you don't, you're like you're thinking about it all. You know, you just. Because it's out there, and especially it's gonna happen. Especially so it, the older you get, the older you get, you're like, man, that's a thing that's gonna happen. When you're, when you're when you're like 25, you're like, oh, what? This yeah. is an endless well of life, you know. And then you yeah, start, you, everything's you're gonna older, happen. You're like, oh shit, I think there's a, I think there's an end point. It's uh, eventually there's a, no. I had my roommate, one of my roommates from college, died in a, a couple of years ago, and it was horrible. <sighs> I'm 56 now. He's 54. It's awful. I can't believe him. That's you know, it just starts happening. Does what it make do you, you less afraid or more? Or does it freak you out more? Mm, I think both. Yeah. It doesn't make me less afraid. No, it freaks me out. I actually, I was actually pretty comforted by the way my dad died. He just had a heart. He was fine and then he had a heart attack and he was dead. Like the idea of decaying freaks me out. The idea of like. Oh, you're in a hospital for like nine, you know, six months. Well, and, and, and that's and my dad was a doctor, and he, so he'd always say the lucky ones go quick. Yeah. So you're right. It, it, it was just like, poof. So what did you take? What 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 was it that? It's like a quiet fart. <laughs> <laughs> you just made it funny. See, you could totally make that it, funny. Yeah. You should write that down. It is. It's a silent. Don't a, steal it. Silent but deadly. Yeah. Um, it, did you? Uh, I will not steal it. That is on record that that is your joke. Don't like my dog there. You know, I look at him and then I think, God, one day he's going to die and I get sad. Yeah. That's why you enjoy him now. I do. That's he's, a, he's a great dog. Jerry's down there under the table. I've heard his, you heard his collar shake a couple times. That was Jerry. Seinfeld. Hmm. Um, what did you. Oh, I want some food. <laughs> hey, what's the deal with no water on the Nerdist? Who puts the peanut butter in the Kong toy? This is very specific. Um, what, uh... <laughs> what, uh... Thank you, Kyle. Um, Kyle's like our Jerry. He's a good... We love him out. 
Um, <laughs> anyway, sorry about your father. Oh, that's okay. No, I appreciate that, and I, I don't, you know, and I, 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 it's nice to talk about it, and and I don't, I feel, I feel okay. I mean, I feel as okay as I think you can feel about that. I have a very, I think I have a weirdly good attitude about it, where I miss him, and but I don't, you know, I'm not every night. I'm not like why, why, you know. I was like, well, he wouldn't want you to be like that. No, you and know, he and, doesn't want you to suffer. But everyone deals with it in their own way. There's no right way to deal with it. So however anyone deals with it, that's the right way. Except, to, you know, I would say kill yourself. That wouldn't be good. That's not a good they way. They don't want you to be, you know. I mean, I remember my grandmother was like 80, in her 80s, and I said, are you afraid to die? And she's like, no. Nah. <laughs> she's like, why not? She goes, oh, enough. <laughs> yeah, at a certain point. Somebody like They're like, you know, isn't that? Because I guess there's nothing left to do. Well, my girlfriend, my ex-girlfriend's grandmother was like 94, and for the last few years of her life, she would just wake up and be like, still? You know, it was just like, because, you know, at a, certain, at a certain point, you just, you look, you, you're just old, yeah. and you're just... Even if you wanted to do more stuff. There, you can't, yeah. yeah, she just couldn't really do anything else, and she was just as old as you can be, and... You know, it was just like enough, enough. I got it, yeah. enough, enough already. So I don't. I think it's. I think it's okay. And I and I was lucky that I had a, a good relationship with him. So it wasn't like, oh, I never got to like. I he knew and I knew how he felt, and so we were we were very. Well, fortunate that's good because that I remember my friend's dad said, you know, you, you feel bad because there's like stuff unresolved. Yeah, he goes, there's always stuff. Un-, you know, you go, oh, I I forgot to say. I mean, it's just you know. Yeah. And then you go, no, it's not about what you didn't say or said. You've said everything. Yeah. It's just you miss the person. It's mostly I think you miss talking to them and hugging them, you know. So you 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 know, you can do that in your mind and Well part of your brain can't really compute it. And I think that ha- no. that's probably just a forever thing where one section of your brain is like no, no, he's fine. He's uh, he's just over. You know, he's sitting on a he's sitting in the chair that he always sat. Well, he's what alive. I believe no, but what I believe is like uh, is like you know, it's like there's people right now in your life that are um, alive. But you don't see them, but you feel them. Sure. You know? And the thing that you feel is you're feeling for them, which to me is energy, which is what love is. So that never goes away. So he's, they're literally, they're still a part of you, you know? And somehow yeah. I think when someone can affect you to the point where you feel them, that just doesn't go away. Right. Because you think of them and then you feel them. Yeah. Well, what's that, you know? They could be alive and not in the room and you feel them. So it's, it, that, you know, that doesn't go away. And, yeah. You know? Maybe there's nothing after this, but who... I don't know. From whose born no traveler returns, (laughs) puzzles the will, and makes us rather keep those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. (laughs) Acting? Us conscious of me, cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is cyclid o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and motion. With this regard, the currents turn awry and lose the name of action. Scene! (laughs) Thank you. Well, I think that's a lovely place to dismount because um, we're at about an hour, ten actually. That was fantastic. What a lovely conversation. I, I, I mean, I'm. Well, I, thank you, Chris Hardwick. I talk. I, I'm. I'm a huge. I'm a huge SNL geek since the beginning, and so just hearing anything, any behind this, you know, all the Phil stuff is really great too. And and you know, uh, what was the one thing that you think? 
or if I'm sure there was more than one, but what do you really what do you think you really got take away from Phil? Like what do you think you learned from him in all that time? Well, he had a lot of hobbies. And he did a lot of stuff. So he got me that like when he goes, Johnny, you gotta get into cars. Okay. Johnny, you gotta get into golf. Okay. So I'm still in the cars and golf, you know, and uh, he, he introduced me to that. And but I, uh, as far as um, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, the one thing I got from him, I mean, I I, I don't know. I I, I really uh, I miss him. I mean, if you said, "Well, are you okay with it now? Are you over it?" I'm like, "No, it's just always there." But you're probably okay with the fact that you're not over it, which is a weird sort of. Uh... Well, I don't know how you get over something like that. I just don't think you ever do. I mean, yeah, my grandfather. The greatest guy in the world, positive, happy, and everything. And he was 22, and he had a brother a couple years older, and was killed when his he was like 20, or he was 24, and his brother got killed when he was 26, and he never, never got over it. Yeah. And he was like in his you know 78, and he was, and he had a picture of his brother. He goes, "Here's my brother," and then he go, and then he just start crying. Oh man, yeah, he my just dad's never. Way. His never... brother died like 30 years ago, and still just brings it up. And he's like, "Ah, oh, he'd probably really love this. Any new movie that comes out, he would have loved that movie. It's just as part of him." Yeah, he just never. I don't think you ever get over it. You know what I mean? I mean, it's not like I, I walk around depressed or anything, but you know, sometimes it, it hits me. You know, it, it still hits me, and it's just, it just um. Oh, it just sucks. It does suck. <laughs> but it definitely makes you appreciate, it should make you appreciate whatever it is that we have that's not that. Like the good stuff. I'm not going to even pretend that I know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, anything that's not, it makes me appreciate like the sad parts, make me appreciate like, oh, when things aren't sad, that's really good. Because by comparison, this really sucks. So when things yeah. are, when things are happy or when I feel good or when I feel like oh I feel okay you know like I really really go mm, this is really special because I could be feeling the other way. Well, I think it, it came down to when I was in my driveway and I'm still alive. I think everyone you lose somebody and it's horrible and then you go, oh, wait wait I can't you can't stop living. Yeah. You know and then people go what do you do and they go you, you know you gotta go you, you gotta go on. Yeah. And you they'll say well why you know. And after a while, you go like, "Oh yeah," and and they get it. They go, "It just," and then it happens all. And then you know, unfortunately, the more and more people you know that go, you finally it just becomes part of like you go, "Well, all right," and then you just go on. I mean, you go, and then someday it'll be your turn, and then that's it. Yeah. So I yeah I try to enjoy enjoy my life like constantly. Well, I'm looking forward to. I learned that. I'm com- I'm looking forward to coming to your theater on uh, to your comedy theater. Yes, on this Thursday. Thursday at. Eight o'clock. Eight o'clock. Yeah, PM 8 p.m. live at the John Lovitz Comedy Club and Podcast Theater at Universal City Walk. It's up the escalator from above the above Johnny Rockets. Above Johnny Rockets. Yeah. Wonder what we'll talk about. I don't know. Wouldn't it be funny? There's nothing left to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> so just watch John and I stare at each other on stage for an hour. Oh, what are you? Well, I'll be interviewing you, Chris Hardwood. The tables shall be turned. Should I bring this table and then we'll just In- turn? Yes, and then turn it. I'll turn it. <laughs> no, we're, now I do it different. I do it on stage, and there's like these two couches. Oh, good. So if you you could be very relaxed, you could eat during the show. You Great. Get something to eat during the show, and That's you great. can and you have a mic, and you could bring a pillow. What? Yeah. Just in case you get a boner. If you want to be comfortable. 
We're not on the same couch, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Lord Jesus, not trying to seduce you. Lord Jesus, who you now believe in because you got SNL, so you had to follow that pact through. I believe it. We're <laughs> all the son of God. <laughs> Well, John Lovitz. I have nothing against Jesus. Are you a Catholic or Christian? I was I, I was raised Catholic. I, yes, you were raised yeah. Catholic. I was raised Jewish. Which I think are very which similar. Means mm, not really. Means my my. <laughs> As any Jew would say, they're very similar. And any Jewish person would go, eh. <laughs> uh, my God is your God's dad. <laughs> oh damn. I guess that's... Trump! Damn it! <laughs> Whoa. Our God's dad's got a kid, and he's fucking back with a vengeance. Yeah, well... <coughs> you're always wondering, what happened to Jesus after he was 12? We don't know. Well, I'm going to say he was Jewish, so he was 13. I'm going to say he had a bar mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> they gave him he was some, a rabbi. They gave him some shekels. He got some bar mitzvah shekels. They gave him some money for his bar mitzvah, and he got to celebrate. Or a pen set. <laughs> a quill and some goat skin. Or a gift certificate for some moccasins or whatever. Or an iPod. <laughs> <laughs> Made out of clay. iPod, iPod, iPod. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> out of clay. What if they had that stuff then and then we just, they just lost the technology? Jesus totally had that stuff then because he could have whatever he wanted. He could yeah. have had an iPod back he then. He thought he could have made one. Yeah, he could have made an iPod and then brought it to life and be like, live iPod. And then he would have temporarily created an internet to download the songs on, but just for like a minute. What if he was alone? He's like, dad, which is God. He's going to have a television. He's like, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are we waiting for? Where they're not ready for it. <laughs> are we there yet? Are we there yet? No. Stop bitching and at then me. Then you're Jesus, and then you die, and, the, and you go up to heaven, and then you see your dad, and you're like, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, I don't Way like you. Way to protect me. I'm yeah. sending you back. <laughs> Way to look over me. Lazarus you bring back from the dead, but me, I'm up here. <laughs> Uh, you kill me to protect did strangers. Did you send me down for in the first I could have just stayed here. <laughs> just back where I started. How do you feel, son? Like I've accomplished nothing. <laughs> right back where I started. And he goes like, if you keep this crap up, I'll send you back. That's why I sent you down in the first place. <laughs> you don't understand me. Then God goes, oh, for Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> He was Jewish, you know. Mm-hmm. Really Jewish. Super Jewish? Crazy Jewish. He was a rabbi. He was lousy with Judaism. Which means he was a teacher. They didn't have the Christian religion then. They were Jewish. They were Roman or Jewish. Yeah, Christians were hipster Jews. They weren't Roman Catholics because that was based on him. That's right. They were Roman and they were, they were Jewish. Had a bar mitzvah? <laughs> then what happened? No well, they say they don't know. I mean, come on. It's like saying, you know, it's like saying a baseball player. Well, he's in high school and now he's in the major leagues. 
Well, what happened in between for seven years? Rumspringer. He got drafted. <laughs> <laughs> they should just look at his blogs and see what he was doing. Oh, so just check his Twitter feed. <laughs> see what he's doing. Eating fish. <laughs> Eating fish. Eating fish. He slept next to a prostitute every night, but they never had sex. <laughs> no, we're just friends. <laughs> Imagine if you're Jesus. He's like, thanks, Mary. Everybody but me. <laughs> Jesus, guess who I slept with last night? Who? Your best friend. All right. <laughs> Fine. What about me? No, we're just friends. You're a prostitute. <laughs> Come on. Nope. You won't respect me. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> oh, somebody's calling. What? I if they're calling, calling me live, like going, how can you say that? Oh, we're not on live. Oh. <laughs> but that'd be really amazing if they. We are on live. We're streaming my show live. We'll, we're going to stream on Thursday night, right? Yes. We're going to stream. Stream. We're not streaming. <clears throat> and I am proud to announce, unbeknownst to Chris Hardwick, he's coming on the John Lovitz. Uh, Comedy Network to do shows in the studio that will be on camera. So he'll continue to do this, and he's going to do live shows on camera. What? Oh, you didn't know? Oh, it's nice to know. I'm oh, going to find out. How awkward. Well, that's weird. Lorraine Newman called me earlier and said, you got it. And I'm like, what did I get? <laughs> I didn't know. Well, uh, you can do that. It's an invitation, but... It would be awkward for you to now say no. <laughs> Damn you, love it! Then you see it, you go like, oh, well, this is really nice. Hmm. <laughs> it's a nice space over there. I like that theater. It's a nice Did you see the podcast studio? I've seen it all, yeah. I was there with um, uh, Rob Paulson a couple, like two months ago. Oh, yeah, ago. yeah. Did with Robbie Paulson. And, uh, On stage? Yeah, yeah. I did Talking Tunes with Rob Paulson. It was fun. Do you do voice? Do you mm -hmm. do cartoon voices? I do. That's how I know Rob, yeah. Yeah, we worked together for like three years. I'm going to have to do some research on you. <laughs> <laughs> Just research everything that happened after 2007. Why do you hate the Jew? <laughs> I don't hate them. Mixed feelings? <laughs> Is it because they put you in awkward situations like they'll say, oh, thank you for doing this? And you're like, I, I never said I would do that. You just said it. And it's very awkward now. If I had to boil it down, it would be that. Yes, if I boiled down all of Judaism into that, I think it would be that. We said this, and now you awkwardly can't say no to this. Yes. Hmm. Oh, does, the, does this comic night. book store know you're leaving? <laughs> and coming to Who the John said Lovitz? I was leaving? Stop it! <laughs> <laughs> That's what I hate about the Jew. <laughs> <laughs> they all awkward. do that to you. Uh, well, thank you for being here, John Lovitz. I will see you on Thursday night. Thank you, Chris. An honor to be on your show. Enjoy your burrito, the number one everyone. show, comedy iTunes. <laughs> oh, American Life. Yeah, but a lot of times it's not. <laughs> sometimes it's Night Vale. Sometimes I've it's... seen it. It says you. Sometimes it's us, sometimes it's Marin, sometimes it's Rogan, sometimes it's Corolla, sometimes it's Kevin. 
Yeah, it keeps switching around. Yeah, we, 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 we flop around. We flop around. I'm just happy to be nominated. I'm just happy to be in the group. Um, How many people listen to this show? This isn't live, so you can snip all this out, right? It's a few hundred thousand. Each show? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to mention then, <laughs> on Fund Anything, we're trying to raise money to help unknown comics. Fundanything.com. And you'll see, it says John Lovitz. Uh, we should include that. What do you, what do you raise? You're raising money for comics? Yeah, to do like specials and, you know, and, and help them do podcasts and different stuff. That's great. Stuff. Yeah. 100% support that. Find new talent. Fund anything. Search for John Lovitz. Com. Might say campaign over, but you can still give money. Don't you listen to the website. You just fucking give your money anyway. If that website tells you otherwise. But you get rewards. It's not like you just give me money and then you go, what do I get? I go... You know, I could do your voice message, your outgoing voice message, yep. or, uh, acting class. You know, there's different rewards. You, you know, you, so you get something for the money. That's cool. Yeah. We support that. Fundanything.com. John Lennon. Oh, God. There's just nothing left to talk about. <laughs> do you want to just awkwardly sit here for 10 seconds? Well, I have a question. Okay. Um, on my right is Jonah. Uh, do you ever introduce him or mention him or you just... Say, sit there and fill in the dead spots. Jonah. There were none, so. <laughs> there Jonah, dead spots. Jonah passed away 10 years ago this very night. I'm a hologram. Ooh. No, I, I talk more usually, but what you were saying was interesting. I, I know, I kind of yap a lot. No, Are you, you should and yap. Jonah a, a comedy team? No, we're friends, and there's usually a third guy on the show, but he is writing on my television show, so he was not able to be here. Um, oh. But uh, but Joan and I have been friends for ages, ages. Kind of a guy that usually throws in jokes, but when you know a couple dudes are talking about dead dads, hard to fucking fit one in. No, you better up your game, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> this is yeah, a- but you said you talk about it on stage. I do talk about it on stage. He doesn't talk about it on stage. I can't. Yeah. I know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, if only. <laughs> 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 no. What do you say? You go. So, uh, so my dad died. No, I do. No, no, no. You can laugh. I do actually. I do. And then I talk about uh, mainly. I've been talking about how ridiculous funerals are, and how insanely expensive funerals are. And and then I had a. I had already weirdly been writing a bunch of stuff about my dad anyway, like months before he died. What did he do for work? My dad was a professional bowler. He was an ex-professional bowler, and he, really? owned, he owned a bowling alley in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, my dad's wow. like a Hall of Fame professional bowler, so he, he retired. What's his name? Billy Hardwick. So he retired in the early 70s, mid-70s. Oh, you know, I used to watch it. Who was the... Um... Dick Weber. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he was with, like in that yeah. group? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, really? D- Dick was my dad's mentor. Uh, Dick oh. was older, a bit older. Dick died, of, I don't know, a handful of years ago, but uh, maybe like six, seven years ago. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's that was my that was my childhood. Was growing up on the Pro Bowlers tour. And did you? So do you bowl? Uh huh. We're gonna save this for my show. <laughs> <laughs> we can talk this about. This become bowling. the pre-interview for the show, <laughs> which is yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah, this is good. This Why is good. do you hate? The Jewish bowler. <laughs> there aren't Chris any. Hardwick. <laughs> there aren't any to hate. <laughs> There was one guy, Larry Lickstein. He was a he was a Jewish bowler. I knew him, Larry Lickstein. There's a reason there aren't any. Right. Because if you went to your you're Jewish, you went to your parents. I want to be a professional bowler. They're like, 
Don't even think about it. <laughs> don't ever mention it again. <laughs> don't. I don't want to hear this nonsense. No. Not an option. No. End of discussion. Be like the movie The Jazz Singer with Neil Diamond, but with bowling instead of pop music. Well, you know, The Jazz Singer with Neil Diamond was based on a movie on the first talkie called The Jazz Singer starring Al, Al Jolson, Jolson in 1927. Yeah. I used to imitate him. I saw that Larry Parks as an actor played the Al Jolson story. But that, that Al Jolson was such a big superstar that the first talking movie, this, the movie was about him, his life. Can you imagine? That's incredible. It was, uh, he was, uh, and he played himself. And he played himself. And but, his dad wanted him to be a cantor, and a, you know, this, you sing all the, all the religious songs at Temple, and he's like, but I want to be on Broadway, and it, it was true. Krusty the Clown. It was basically the Krusty the Clown story, Herschel Krasovsky, where he's, his dad wanted him to be, uh, wanted to be a rabbi. Yeah. And it's the same, the same story. And he said, I want to be a clown. We didn't even talk about The Critic! We didn't talk about God The Critic. God damn it! Good show. Great show. Fucking great show. Well, I can come back. <laughs> no, this was it! No, you can come back for Heading sure. into hour four of the John Lovitz episode. You should, God damn it! <laughs> I know, how long? You said it's an hour. It's been an hour or 30. Um, Are you going to edit it? Probably not. Um, but please come back, because then we can slobber all over you about The Critic, which was a great, great, great show. All right. Yeah. All right, and I will see you Thursday night. Thank you, Chris Hart. John Lovitz, good to see you. Thank you, Jonah. Thank you, John. And thank you to Jerry, my dog. <laughs> now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. Behind every successful business is a story, and some of them might surprise you. Like how Chobani's first yogurt factory was discovered on a piece of junk mail, or how the founder of the multi-million dollar cosmetics brand Drunk Elephant was told by everyone, including her own mother, that the name sounded like a dive bar. I'm Guy Raz, and on my show How I Built This, I talk to founders behind the world's biggest companies and brands to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you'll hear entrepreneurs share moments of doubt and failure and talk about how they were able to overcome them on their way to the top. How I Built This is like a masterclass in innovation and creativity, a how-to guide for navigating life's challenges from the people who've done it all. Follow How I Built This on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus.